If you would, you can take your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Going to continue looking at um, topics uh, in one sense, but through an exegetical, expositional, that is, uh, lens. That is, we're looking at the text itself, but we're not sequentially in a book of the Bible. We've not been in Hebrews, but I want to look at this just as I pray. And I think through the church, and I think through where I'm at in my own life, and as I think through the last few weeks. And so very thankful for Riley last week as he brought the word and was encouraged by that. But also, I had a plan where I thought, I want to keep this discussion on what it means to mature and grow in Christ, because I talked about that two weeks before, and the way the word does that and impacts our lives. But also, um, talk more on that concept of putting on and putting off. And then Riley did kind of hit that a little bit, and felt like what I want to encourage you with this morning, before we kind of Uh, next week with Harry Walls and then jumping into the book of Revelation, uh, I I want to encourage you and look at this passage and remember, really I'd say the posture upon which uh, our obedience should flow from uh, and and love for the Lord. And so we're going to look at this this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, we're going to look at hopefully what we do every Sunday, which is the sufficiency of Christ. But before we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, we are going to discuss the insufficiency of sleep. Do we have some amens? The insufficiency of sleep. There's certain things that sleep, when you go and lay your head on the pillow tonight, it just does not do. It's good for what it is, and some of us love it even more than others, but some, I think you get to the point where you're going, it really doesn't deliver on its promises. And so, you know, especially you parents out there, you kind of go, do I really need it that much? Or do I need the extra two hours? Maybe I should stay awake and just get it done because it doesn't seem that when I put my head on the pillow that my problems magically go away. Or you're just having that kind of understanding, and this is life, right? That you think your problems could fade away, uh, and they don't. I think everyone, I know everyone's a little bit different the way the Lord has made us, but um, I think everyone has a little bit of escapism in them, especially in a media-driven culture where you want to escape to a movie, you want to escape to a show, you want to escape to fantasy, you want to escape to your bed, you want to escape to sleep. Um, but it is insufficient. It, it gives a lofty promise. You are tired and God has made us to go, lay our head and to rest, but you wake up and you go, well, that didn't deliver. As we look at this idea of not only the way we work as human beings, we need rest. God has made us to rest. But even the pattern of scripture in Genesis, which is brought up here in Hebrews chapter 4, that he rested on the seventh day. And it's not that God needs to rest. That is a way in which God, uh, the Father, is tired. But it is that it is this pattern that is to represent that you innately, by God's design, desire it. You realize something at this stage in the world, in redemptive history, is not quite right. You see glimpses, maybe even Sunday morning, Lord willing, of Sunday morning should be a glimpse of true and wonderful fellowship with believers. And so there is that sense in which it's a taste, hopefully, of heaven, 
You hear truth. That is not truth from a preacher, but truth from God's word. And you go, that is good and a balm to the soul. But then you got to leave, right? And then you got to get back to the world and you start to see those things of sin and you get discouraged. But there is a rest that is permanent. There is a rest that is sufficient, but it's not a physical kind of rest. It is this spiritual rest that comes in Christ. And so we're going to talk about that spiritual rest this morning in the way that uh, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, reveals it here in Hebrews chapter really 3 and chapter 4. Now we have not looked at Hebrews in recent history, unless it's kind of in your Bible reading plan. But when you look at the book of Hebrews, he is not only extolling, that is, he, is, he is lifting high and saying, Jesus is greater, right? Kind of like in Colossians, but he does so with a certain audience, probably particularly a Jewish audience that is tempted to go back to Judaism. And he's explaining to them that, no, you have something so f- much better in Christ. So if you just go back to just a little bit of pr- uh, preview here, Hebrews chapter 1, he begins by reminding them, that you know your Old Testament. Again, that's kind of this idea of probably the audience being Jewish, familiar with the, what we would consider the Old Testament, saying that God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed there, or appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And he goes and he talks about Jesus being the more excellent name. And if you're wondering, well, why did they need this? Just jump over to chapter two and you see, oh, there's a reason, there's a purpose behind this sermon, this letter, which is chapter two, verse one. This reason we must pay much closer. Just sometimes in the Greek, you, you have to add, it, it doesn't sound right in English, but they're trying to emphasize in English what's emphasized clearly in the Greek. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And he goes on, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Hebrews is a reminder of things they seem to know, maybe not in a whole and just like all of us, we forget things, but he starts to look at the author of our salvation, Christ himself. And then in chapter 3, he starts to make this contrast, not only just of Moses, but also of God's people in Israel. And I just was really encouraged as I I studied this, and so I wanted to kind of share it with you and be encouraged as well. But chapter 3, and the therefore goes back to the greatness of Christ. He says, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was all uh, in all his house. And he goes on to say, Moses was great. The law is great. He was even, for the most part, faithful. Part the end of his life. Not uh, speaking to the rock as he should have. But he's going, Christ, verse 6, was faithful as a son over his house in a way that is greater than Moses. And there's a promise. Moses is going to lead 
Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of slavery into the promised land. And he's saying that promise of Moses was good, but there's even a greater promise. And he starts to begin this big kind of picture of the generation that did not enter. And he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 and verse 8 of chapter 3. And he says, today if you hear his voice, and he's going to keep coming back. Really, he's going to exposit it throughout chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. So which generation? This is the one that came out of Egypt that is wandering Israel, uh, uh, that's wandering the, the desert, the wilderness. And if you're wondering as well, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if you I remember, I think the first time was in, it was probably seminary when I really looked deep at a map and we were talking about different things and you look and go, well, I've never thought about this before, but let's look at Egypt and let's look at Israel. And then I knew, because I was a good Sunday school graduate, that it was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then you look at that map and you're going, what happened? Right? This is not, I mean, I know they don't have planes and trains, and, but It should not take 40 years. Well, this is exactly what happens. They wander as judgment. But he's saying there in Psalm 95, which he's going to identify as a Psalm of David, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. That is, they hardened their hearts as in the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. God was faithful. God was faithful. God was faithful. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In the most practical way, that meant that generation does not see the promised land outside of Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses does not see the promised land. And so verse 12, he says, see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, and this is going to be very interesting as we unpack this unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but rather encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. And I think as long as you're living and breathing, that's how I'm going to define today. The Lord is not returning. You are still living and breathing. That means that is today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For we have become partakers of Christ. We hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm and till the end. While it is said, and he repeats it, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now I briefly run through that because I want you to see the whole arguments because when we drop into chapter four, the therefore is that. Therefore, because you have seen this generation, you have read about this generation. And this, of course, is the first century. So it's hundreds of years for them, but long in the distant past. And you can say, for us, we, we didn't know this generation, just like they didn't know this generation, but they can learn from that generation. And therefore, let us fear. 
lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may have fallen short of it. This comes back to why this story? Why this from the writer of Hebrews? Because, remember, chapter 2, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. If you're looking for a text, maybe you've heard this phrase, um, that, you know, we, we need to uh, preach the gospel to ourselves. If you had to say, where, where is that biblically? What do you mean by that? I would probably say this is as close to it uh, as it gets for that kind of idea. You never move on. You, you, never, um, you never get to a place where you don't need to be reminded of what God has done through Christ for us. Especially as we look to even this morning to the Lord's table, that is a reminder of that gospel, of that good news, of this promise. And there are those who were exposed to it then. There are those who are exposed to it now in his church who fall short. And you better examine your own life. And we're going to see that here in looking at this idea of Rest. Like every Christian in every age, there is a temptation to look back the way Lot looks back, or Lot's wife, excuse me, looks back at Sodom. And there is exhortation pleading here in our passage to not forget the beauty of Christ, the grace, and the mercy of his salvation. He wants them to be assured there is a way to be at rest. But that true rest is not a place. It's not the promised land. It's not across the Jordan. True rest is only found in a person. So true rest is found in a person, not in a place. And I think that's kind of overarching as he pushes to Christ throughout this passage. Our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to identify within this, these kind of four, I'm going to call them attributes of true rest of true rest. And that is, number one, that true rest is, I'll put it this way, by invitation only. True rest is by invitation only. And he's going to remind them that this good news is something that was proclaimed to that generation, and it is proclaimed to you, and it is available. If you've heard, it is available. I think everyone strives and would say, I want, that's why I think so many probably early in the church come, say, I want to believe this is true. But then it's the persecution that starts to choke out many, kind of like the seed that was um, cast onto stony ground or into the thorns, and it is, it is choked out. But he wants to encourage them. They have been invited. If you're here this morning, you are invited invited to enter into a rest. Why? Because he's going to argue here that there is a rest that is spoken of in the Old Testament, of a rest coming in the promised land. But that rest was not, I'll use the word true, but it is not final, right? It represented something of a picture of when God's people were faithful and obedient. But of course, we understand that 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 is a a representative But it looks forward to true rest that comes in Christ. One of the recurring themes is a, uh, in the scriptures, is a future salvation, not only for Israel, but obviously through Israel. 
and through the promised Messiah. Some may be tempted as you read the Old Testament. You might start to think that maybe the rest was found. And I think it's helpful that you find out, well, that really wasn't the final place of rest. But if you read Joshua 21, verse 44, and you just listen to this, you do find places like in Joshua 21, verse 44, that in Yahweh gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Well, how do you understand that? I I understand that in its historical context. Up to that point, they have been faithful. But there are definitely things, not only in what's going on in that time, of they, they don't occupy all of the land. I think that comes in the future. But also... The rest isn't final. That is, Joshua dies. The generation dies. And the one that is raised up throughout the book of Judges kind of gets in that cycle of where they're disobedient, they're unfaithful. God raises up a judge and is faithful to them over and over and over again. And of course, ultimately God's going to use those things to bring about his Redeemer, not just a judge who redeems Israel for a moment, but a future redeemer. And then, of course, not only redeemer and judge, but a future king. And that's what they are longing and looking for. And so there is, yes, rest and yes, moments of peace, just like you and I. Moments of peace. There's some good weeks. There's good days. There's good years. But something that doesn't quite satisfy, and that is that as Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. There's some rest that we still long for. And so he reminds them here in these first few verses of this invitation that they were given and that they better fear. Like there's a good fear in that, right? I, I actually better wake up and go, don't be lulled to sleep by this world. Does my life reflect that I believe these things to be true? And he says in verse two that indeed we have a good news. So, That idea of gospel proclaimed to us just as they also. And he's saying, they had good news, right? They were promised rest. We are promised rest. But the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who, um, those who heard. For we who have believed Enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore my wrath, he goes back to Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he's spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news proclaimed to them failed to enter it because of disobedience. He again determines a certain day. And he goes back to that Psalm 95. He says, today, that, what day? Today. Christ hasn't returned. You're living, you're breathing, you're hearing. This is today. Saying through David, after long ago, a time, just as he has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And he says, for if Joshua had given them rest. You know, what about Joshua 21? Well, it was not true rest. It was momentary, and the rest that we need is permanent and eternal. He would not have spoken of another day after that. 
You gotta love when scripture itself is expositing scripture and it's just pointing out the, the common sense. He's saying, hey, he spoke of a future day, of a future judge, a future Messiah, a future king. So clearly we look back and we understand that rest was not the true and final rest that they were offered. But it still begs the question, what about a people that were offered this rest that did not enter? And is that a warning that if we don't pay attention that we do or may not enter? He wants them to know they have not, as far as this audience, and you didn't miss it today. You didn't miss it if you're hearing this message. I don't know if you've ever missed a major event, a major life event. I mean, there's a lot of events in your life that you can postpone. Think back to 2020, weddings postponed. You can do it a little bit later. Maybe you didn't get to, as a grandparent to uh, see, a, see a grandbaby, but you did eventually and a few months later. But I think as a, a parent, I just was thinking about this going, there are just some things, if you miss it, you missed it. And, and as a parent, I, I've been blessed. I, I haven't had any uh, reasons that uh, I couldn't be there for the birth of our four boys. But if I did miss it, I was trying to think, what are those few things in life? You can't reverse that. I mean, you, you can't go ask your wife, can you wait, you know, just another day? Can you hold on? Can we go ahead and put the bait? No, that's, that's not how this works, right? If you miss it, you miss it. It's pretty permanent. You can't go backwards in time and reset it. I love the American ideal, right? You can lose your fortune, rebuild your fortune, and do all these things. But there are some things that you want you miss it, you miss it. And he's saying, this isn't one of them right now. It isn't to say that there is not a day coming. And this is the warning side. This is when after we die, then the judgment, there comes a day when this offer does not remain. But he is encouraging you. The invitation remains today. Why? Think of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. There is more that need to hear this message. The invitation is today. And he's saying, don't harden your hearts. Don't be tempted to reject Jesus for the things of this world. Or in their case, go back to Judaism. Maybe they're facing less persecution, more acceptance. Maybe they're that's where their family would, would accept them if they would go back. And he's saying no. Saying Jesus is worth more and is a rest that is permanent. And it's offering come to it. This leads to one of the most powerful truths, though, I think, in this passage. Especially as you start to think through um, verses 12 and 13 and the nature of, of Scripture. Because... The temptation in this passage, as you study it, is to look and to see the idea of obedience and disobedience. And you come away and you go, well, the answer is be obedient. That's how I enter into the rest. Obey the commands of God. Obey him. Do more. Because you look at verse 6, he says, they failed to enter. Why? Because of disobedience. Obedience. But you, as you read the full context, recognize the root of that disobedience is chapter 3, verse 19. The root of the disobedience is see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The true root cause 
is unbelief because true rest is not something you can earn. In fact, I love how he points out in this passage with the nature of creation that it's actually something that only comes when you cease working. That kind of leads us to verse 9 and 10 in our second point, that true rest is only found when you cease working. That makes sense. It's a good old way of thinking, right? Rest comes when you cease from work. I think it's so helpful because we can focus on the action, but we understand why did they act? Why were they disobedient? Well, it's because they did not believe, and therefore they did not obey. And that's an important side of things because there's over and over again in Scripture that salvation is by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. How do you enter this rest? You don't do something. You believe in someone. Remember, it's not a place that you're earning your spot in, but it is a person you are believing in. You come through faith in the person of Christ, through the work of Christ, and he gives rest to the soul. Look at verse 9. He says, So, do you believe his argument? There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is, there is a future rest that is greater than what was promised in the Old Testament. Looking forward, again, this represents the promised land, we understand, but a rest that comes through Christ. And he says, verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This idea that by nature, right, we like to earn things. We like to accomplish things. We like to build things. Salvation, eternal rest, is not one of those things. Why? We don't have the capacity. You don't have the tools. We're not able to earn favor with God. Why? Because we are fallen. Because we are sinful creatures separated from God and there's no way back. Someone is going to pay the penalty of sin, which is death. But Jesus does that on our behalf. And then the question becomes, are you united, as you remember back, united in verse 2 with belief, with faith? If you're united to what he has done, then you are united with Christ and you have salvation and rest in him. And I think this is where that distinction of what flows from what, right? What, what, is it the tree that bears the fruit, Right? Jesus talks often about giving that analogy of it actually is that you need a new heart that has new desires. You need a uh, new tree that bears the right kind of fruit. This idea of regeneration. And I think you understand that unbelief leads to certain actions and belief leads to certain actions. And just the general principle, what you believe precedes what you do. Your actions are based on what you believe is true. If you guys, Nebraska, we don't have much of this. Every once in a while, if you guys know Lake Wanahoo and Wahoo, you'll see it if it gets cold enough. Um, but I'm always amazed when I watch it. Those of you who maybe grew up more north, I have cousins in Minnesota and Twin Cities. And when it gets cold up there, 
It's different than here. I lived in Minnesota for a little bit, and that was one of my big complaints. When it got cold there, it stayed cold. I didn't like that. When the snow came, it didn't leave. But you start to see their, their love for fishing, and their love for lakes, and their love for ice fishing, their love for hockey. And they, those who grew up around the ice, it's kind of an intuition. And I'll be honest, I like a little more evidence. But they just kind of know. It's been so many days. It's been a below zero. I think we can take the truck out on the ice. Really? Are you sure? And they just kind of, I grew up around these. I know it's safe. I'm going, I, I need a little more evidence. I drill a hole and do something a little more scientific here. Um, but why? Why would you take a three-quarter ton tuck, a truck and drive it out onto a lake? Doesn't seem smart to me. But they truly believe that thing is solid and will hold the weight. They trust the ice and they act. They drive on it. The believer is not promised a sinless, perfect life. But your life does reflect what you believe and hold to be true. If you believe Christ is fully God, fully man, if you believe he truly regenerated your heart and gave you a new life with new desires, then that is going to equal living differently, being obedient. But you don't want to mix those up, right? We don't want to mix it up and understand it the other way. It's not that action leads to rest. It's belief that leads to rest. And that's why I said earlier, the posture then, your obedience, your posture towards being faithful to Christ is one of rest. You're not wondering, what do I need to do? You're saying, I know what Christ has done, and I want to, out of gratitude, be faithful and obedient to him. You're not running around anxious. We've all been there, wondering if he'll accept me, wondering if he is pleased with me. Rather, we rest in what he has given. It's a beautiful thought. Rest from your works of trying to be something. But how do you know, right? We're all wanting to, to know. How do you know? Because some of us can't even tell, you know, what do you wanna, where do you want to go for, for lunch this afternoon? I don't know. Like, we don't even know our desires for what's next. What do you want to do this week? Where do you want to go on vacation? There's all kinds. Of, I don't even know what I, what I want. How do you know if you are resting in Christ? How do you know? Because again, it's not going to be based on the obedience portion, right? It's going to be based on the belief side of things. But there is a way in which I do believe that that rest can be tested. I think the answer is to immerse yourself in the scriptures. And to that, look at verses 11 through 13. And this understanding that true, true rest is tested by the word of God or confirmed, or encouraged. So often you see this, and this is true, this is about the nature of Scripture, and you think about it in the nature of sanctification. And what I mean by that is it, it's, it's in the nature of um, the way the Word works in your life. But it's interesting, the context here, and I think that's true, but the context here is really about salvation. It's not so much about sanctification. Although, of course, again, how those relate, um, and in the way in which he's saying, out of this flows action, which then we would understand and call that sanctification. 
But he, he drops in here scripture in the midst of being diligent to enter that rest. And we know how, which is be diligent to believe. Lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. How do you know? How are you diligent? Uh, ESV says, strive to enter the rest. That sure sounds like a, don't, you want me to do something, right? I think it goes back to what he wants is for you to believe and to rest and then live in light of that. But he goes and he talks about what's famous and well-known to many of you, verses 12 and 13, about the very nature of Scripture. And I think some of us aren't probably uh, are a true believer, but you find no rest. A lot of that could be you are not in the word. You are not immersing yourself in the word because the scripture has a way of both encouraging, right? Uplifting. It, yes, is a sword that can tear you apart, but it will build you back up just as well. But for the work of the word, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, to have its effect, you better be in it. In fact, he says, think about this, based on verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. And he goes right into why. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, which again, is just an illustrative way of going, this thing gets to the truth. This is an autopsy. We're going to find out what's going on. It's not just going to, he's saying, we're, we're getting through the nitty and the gritty, the division of the soul, both joints and marrow. That is, it's going to get in here and figure out where everything is. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In fact, it can get into your soul and it can cut you up and it can figure out what is true and what is not true. No one else may see it, but you know your heart. You may say things outwardly, but the scriptures ultimately won't let you blow smoke. You might be able to do it to others, but you cannot do it when you come face to face with scripture. Why? Because it has this nature upon which it'll lay open do you believe these things are true? Are there areas you need to grow in? And scripture continues to confront you with those things. And the fact is, verse 13, there is no creature, there is no person hidden from his sight. But all things are uncovered, laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. It's not the most restful language, Right? But that's the context. The context is one of, hey, enter into his rest. But also understand, when he's getting back to, let us fear, lest while promise remains of entering his rest, one may seem to fall short. Or you go back to chapter two, verse one. Why is he writing the whole letter? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He still wants you, he wants his readers to look at themselves in the mirror of Scripture and to be laid open. How do you know if you're resting in Christ? You have to be engaging the Scripture. Is this truly what you believe? And remember, these are persecuted believers. 
They're tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to their way of life. And for some saved out of different uh, backgrounds, it can be tempting. And he's saying, the Lord knows all those things. He's already given you the positive, right? Jesus is better. There is this idea of this warning. And you can even, I think, look to not only the negative side of which Scripture brings about painful at times truths about who we are and our thoughts and attitudes. And I've had those things. And, you know, I might not think an attitude is that big of a deal. But then you look to Scripture and you go, "Ah, I guess I am more anxious. You know, we look and we go, ah, everyone would be, it's just human nature to be worried. And then you kind of jump into Matthew chapter 6 and be anxious for nothing. And then you're going, I think anxiousness is a sin. That seems to be Matthew 6 is saying, right? And it opens you up in a way to which we understand what God has called us to. And if we're going to be at rest, we're going to be obedient to him. It's scripture just as its nature is not something neutral. It's not something that is going to have no effect. Uh, I love one preacher uh, quotes, uh, he's quoting another preacher when he, when he says this, but that the, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And so it's going to have its effect. And it is either going to harden the heart like in Israel of unbelief, or it is going to soften that wax. might be difficult, but you fight through. And I think true rest comes as you engage with the scriptures. Obviously, it's an understanding of what Christ has done, but you can see there is a relationship to the way the word, especially you think about evangelism, the word can cut through because it's more powerful, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, yes, Scripture lays us bare, uncovered. There's, there's nowhere to hide. It also can build, it us, build us up, but ultimately it points us to verse 14 through the end of the chapter, which is the confidence doesn't come through your works. The confidence does not come through your study of Scripture. Your confidence is in a person. Your true rest, number four, is anchored by your confession or our confession. It is anchored by this understanding that it is Christ, not Josh, not anybody else, but it is, it is, it is Christ by whom we have been saved. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession Go back to chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember this, from when we began this whole section. Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle, high priest of our confession. Who's the confession? Well, it's Jesus. And it's not just Jesus in general. It's, it's who he is in his nature. In fact, one of my favorite places to go for this is uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 3. You don't need to go there as well. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, when 
Paul there is explaining why he's writing this book to Timothy, his son in the faith. He says it this way. He says, I'm writing these things to you, and you'll, you'll note why this is important towards the end of this. But he writes that whole book, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I'm delayed, I write, referring to 1 Timothy, that letter, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of sport of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And what you, as I remember preaching through this passage, and you start to read, there was an early church understanding of this idea of the confession. What do we confess to be true? And they confess the great mystery of godliness, which in this case like, is another way of saying Christ, because it goes on, and some think this is an early church hymn that Paul quotes, but it's about who Christ is. And so at the end of verse 16, he says, common confession, greatest mystery of godliness, and then he says this, he talking of Christ, who was manifested in the flesh, that is, the incarnation, was vindicated in the Spirit. The Spirit said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So whether you want to understand whatever in the early church, that idea of confession is about Christ. And very clear in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is our confession. It is not simply a list of rules and doctrine, but it is, again, a person, the great high priest. Why? Well, because of who he is and what he has done for Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. You just have to love scripture. I'm all over the place, right? I feel like I'm at the Husker game again last night. Roller coasters. I'm being threatened. Don't be an unbeliever like those in the wilderness and neglect such a great salvation. And within the same chapter, Come, enter my rest. And I'm going, well, that's good. But scripture, living and active, it's going gonna, it's gonna to test you and cut you apart. Do you really believe these things are true? And then he pulls me right back and says, look at Christ. He can sympathize with our weakness because of who he is and yet without sin. That's called balance, right? Ending in calling us back to the person of Christ and where he is saying, well, what does this mean? What does this believe? But he puts it in this phrase, in this way, in verse 16, that he says, therefore, let us draw near. And this would not be the place that a sinner wants to go close to. But if you're in Christ, if you're united in faith, you can draw near. Not just draw near, but he says, verse 16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And there's more here. It kind of continues on into the nature of that high priest and how Christ is a greater high priest than the ones that came before that Israel would know. But it is the reminder that the invitation is true and it is there. That you would find rest, not in a future place, in something that is material, or even in the fact that, say, this idea of, of heaven where all rights are made wrong, but really the, the peace 
The rest comes because of the person and the work of Christ. And he invites us to draw near. For the believer, and there are clearly believers in, I think, this letter that he's writing to, they need to be reminded. You need to be reminded where you should find rest, where you have found rest, and be encouraged that you hold these things true. And for those who don't believe, this is again. I think there's those people in Hebrews too. They are called to examine themselves. Are they resting in Christ? Spurgeon said it this way. You do not know the gospel, dear friends, if you have not obtained through it peace. Peace is the juice, the essence, the soul of the gospel. If you have come to know the good news of Jesus Christ, it should bring rest for the soul. It's looking forward to a permanent and final rest. Does that mean the circumstances around your life are peaceful and restful? No. That's not the promise, right? The promise is future that that even rest we have in our souls will become sight. Faith will become sight. True rest is found in a person and not in a place. And too many people spend their lives looking for that little piece of rest. They're not going to find it anywhere but Christ. Let's pray. Father, You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. As we approach your table this morning, what a beautiful picture and reminder it is that we can have confidence to have a relationship with you, to draw near the throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace, to find help in our time of need. Encourage us in those truths. Let our souls be at rest, being reminded that, yes, we strive to be faithful and obedient, but that it always comes out of this posture upon which we are encouraged and refreshed this morning as we look to the death and the resurrection of your Son. It refreshes our souls because what is most important has been taken care of by Christ. That he has paid an eternal debt with his death on the cross. Lord, we thank you and just pray now as we look to be reminded of the things that we do confess as a church about who Christ is and the good news of his gospel. Lord, that we would be encouraged together as we proclaim yet again the beauty and uh, just the glory of his death and resurrection. We ask this in his name. Amen.